This is Phil Kaiser. Welcome, welcome. Going to be doing something a little bit different today and answer some great questions that have been raised on the topic of hermeneutics. As we have previously seen, hermeneutics is a word that refers to the rules and the methods for properly interpreting the scripture. And uh, people have rightly noticed that I do use narrative to teach us how to live. Uh, I believe it's in obedience to Christ's command in Matthew 4, verse 4, to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word, including narrative words. But narrative is not law, so how can this be? So here is the very observant question. This writer asks, if a person or passage is simply describing something with nothing said in the positive or negative about that something, then it is descriptive and should not be considered something we are commanded to do. It is only when Scripture specifically instructs or prescribes that New Testament believers do something that we are to take it as a command to obey. Is this not true? Well, while I agree with the first sentence that you can't get ought from is, or imperative from narrative, or law from a mere description, I disagree that narrative should not be consulted for ethics. Ethics is far more than simply rules. It's true that the rules of Scripture only come from God's imperative commands, but there's a lot more to ethics than rules. As uh, Greg Bunsen and many other ethicists have pointed out, rules pulled out of the context of their defining narrative often become meaningless. For example, uh, Paul said to the Thessalonians, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. That's Second um, Thessalonians 3 verse 10. Now, if we let this command stand without the defining narrative, we would have to starve infants and invalid adults because they can't work. After all, it clearly says, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. But the narrative context shows who the anyone is referring to. He was talking about any one of those able-bodied adults who are being lazy and sponging off of others in the context. And hundreds of similar examples could be given. Uh, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. Sounds clear enough. Until you try debating with people, and suddenly you realize that without narrative, you can't even define murder. Is all war murder? What about self-defense? What about capital punishment? What about abortion? One uh, Harry Krishna that was debating with me finally angrily retorted that we Christians are hypocrites. We violate the command not to murder when we eat animals. And I pointed out that there's plenty of narrative passages where God himself says it's okay to eat meat. And since God doesn't contradict himself, it's obviously he doesn't define killing animals as murder. Uh, some people say that abortion is not murder, but other passages in the Pentateuch say otherwise. Now, granted, uh, those are laws and not narrative, but, but what about self-defense? I've had a person tell me that killing another person in self-defense is murder. Uh, when I have pushed him, if he would kill an attacker, if he was an axe-wielding murderer ready to axe his wife to death, he consistently replied that he would not kill him since all killing is murder. But there are plenty of narrative passages where God has no problem with self-defense. They aren't commands, but since God was okay with it, we would assume that it isn't sin and therefore isn't a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Uh, others claim that all wars are murder. 
While some wars are murder and are condemned by God, there are other wars that God said were not. Uh, the, the larger catechism of the Westminster Assembly documents from the Bible that there are many other issues that are classified by the Bible under the topic of murder, such as abuse of our bodies through poor eating habits, poor sleeping habits, etc. And so here's a question. Was Jesus using a bad hermeneutic when he applied hateful words and lack of forgiveness to the Sixth Commandment? We would say no. He, he was looking at all four dimensions of biblical ethics that were outlined in the Old Testament. L let me list those four dimensions of ethics for you. If we are to avoid Pharisaic legalism, it is absolutely essential that we understand all four dimensions. The first dimension is what Bonson calls deontology. Now, that's just a $10 word for rules or principles or commandments. Uh, I would go actually further than the person who gave the earlier question, and I would say that if you can't find the rule in the Pentateuch, it likely is not a rule given by God. Every commanded rule given in the New Testament can be found in the Pentateuch, every single one. How do I know that? Because the New Testament says so. Romans 3 verse 20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. Only God's law can give that knowledge. Uh, James 2.9 says that we are convicted by the law as transgressors. And uh, 1 John 2.4 defines sin this way. Sin is lawlessness. If you can't find it in the law, it's not sin. And, and thus Romans 4.15 gives the biblical maxim that, quote, where there is no law, there is no transgression, unquote. So it's pretty clear that only the law can define sin, and the first five books of the Bible constitute that law. Narrative passages may illustrate the law and help to define the law, but there must be some law in the Pentateuch for us to say that any given thought, goal, motive, or action is sinful. Uh, you may be thinking I'm painting myself in a box even tighter than what the questioner intended, but I think it's actually a liberating principle. Anyway, the second Dimension of ethics is what Bonson calls teleology. What is the future of an action? In other words, what are the goals, trajectory, or the results of an action? Uh, this is what we call teleology. And thus Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 10.23. He's saying that you may have deontology on your side because it is lawful, but you're still in sin because you don't have teleology on your side. The action isn't helpful. It doesn't build up. In chapter 6 of the same book, he says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. For example, drinking may be lawful, but drunkenness is not because the teleology is wrong. Uh, having a birthday cigar may be lawful, but if you're addicted, you are still in sin. And Paul's point is that you, you could technically be keeping the letter of the law, but still be in sin because you have violated the purpose of that law or the desired outcome of the law. In other words, teleology. Now, the purpose of the law is defined by the context, often a narrative context. And thus, though the law commands us to bless one another... One narrative passage helps to define that blessing more clearly. It says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. That's Proverbs uh, 27, verse 14. A righteous deed, that's blessing, is turned into a sin because of a bad intended result. 
Now, of course, that verse defines not just the results of the blessing, but also the motives, which is part of the third part of ethics, uh, the individual person. Even the verse on, on not eating if you don't work deals with what kind of person he's talking about, right? The law applies differently to you if you're under authority as opposed to being in authority. The law applies differently to infants than to adults. Uh, the law intends for our inward motives to be pure. And Christ highlights this side of ethics a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. You might technically have not violated the command against adultery, but Christ points out that you could still have violated it in your heart. And then the last dimension of ethics is the situation. In the proverb I quoted about rising early in the morning to, to bless the neighbor with a loud voice, it's highlighting the fact that the context, the situation, is wrong person could say, well, where in the law does it say I can't rise early in the morning and bless my neighbor with a loud voice at 2 a.m.? It doesn't say that. Uh, well, the narrative sections illustrate how that law is lived out. And so even narrative sections have ethical calls upon our lives. I'll just give you one illustration. It's a very famous one. It's 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul gives example after example of God judging Old Testament saints. In other words, he's appealing to history. And he says this, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So there is an ethical imperative that he derives from that history, and it was because the history illustrated God's judgments on Israelites who had broken the law. So the law was prior to the narrative, but the narrative helps to illustrate it. He continues in the same vein. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as example. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Obviously, all of the sins illustrated in the history could be found in the law, but the point is that Paul derived several ethical imperatives from the histories themselves. He continues with some major doctrinal conclusions from those historical examples. This is, uh, let's see, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So, how do we properly use narrative without getting ourselves into trouble? Paul's obviously inspired, we're not. How do we uh, use it properly? Most people would recognize that just because Judas hung himself does not justify us hanging ourselves. That's obvious, right? But people make the same mistake when they say, uh, because Pharaoh took the people's land in Genesis, it's A-OK -okay for the government to own all property today. We'd say, no, no, that narrative passage cannot overturn the clear testimony of the law. Or they say, because uh, the church people freely shared their property with each other in Acts 4 that it's okay to advocate for socialism, where the state confiscates and redistributes a property without consent. Uh, that's a misuse of narrative, because even the narrative is teaching the opposite. So here's the way that we should use narrative to fill out all four sides of ethics. 
Uh, first of all, we look in the law. The rule itself must be laid down in the law of God. If it isn't commanded, it isn't a rule. But then the full dimensions of that rule can be illustrated by narrative passages. How do we know? Well, here are some rules that help. First, did God himself speak favorably or unfavorably of an action in the narrative passage? If he spoke favorably, then it's okay. So when God told Joshua to use a deceptive ruse against Ai in their battle with Ai, uh, that's Joshua chapter 7, we can deduce from that that certain forms of deception in battle are okay and do not violate the law not to bear false witness against our neighbor. But it's because God himself authorized it. A second, did Jesus engage in an action? Since he was sinless, he could never engage in an action that involved sin. Now, of course, he was a unique human leader, and he was God too, so it doesn't automatically mean that you can do what Jesus did. I, I might actually devote a whole podcast to this question because it's been another question that has come up. But I think everyone could at least agree that if Jesus did it, it can't automatically be ruled out as sin since God cannot sin and Jesus could not sin. Third, did Jesus approve of an action that the disciples engaged in? Then we can assume that he's helping to define the boundaries of that law. For example, when Jesus told his disciples to flee from their persecutors rather than willingly getting captured, I think we can assume that this is one lawful exception to the command to submit to civil governments. If they're persecuting you for the gospel and they want you to quit preaching and to turn yourself in, you don't have to. Fourth, does the structure of the passage help to define an ethical passage? Uh, in Proverbs, there's a lot of parallelism that does this. On the one side of the parallel, an ethical principle is laid out, and that's in the law, right? And then the parallel of that, con uh, it's a contrasting parallel or a comparative parallel, that will help to define it. Likewise, the second side of a chiasm will help to define the first and many times clear up ambiguities in an ethical uh, question. I've used this a number of times. And by the way, a chiasm is an ABCD CBA uh, structure where the two A's fill out and complement each other, and likewise the two B's and two C's with the center of the chiasm being the main theme. It's very frequently helpful in interpretation. Fifth, the prophets show us the consequences of obeying or disobeying God's laws. This is the teleological side of ethics that looks to the goals, the consequences, the trajectory. If God is angry with a given action, we can assume that it was sinful. And so let me go back to the question and, and see if I've answered it adequately. The, the question said, well, it's actually a statement, isn't it, uh, with a question after it. If a verse or passage is simply describing something with nothing said in the positive or negative about that something, then it is descriptive and should not be considered something we are commanded to do. It is only when Scripture specifically instructs or prescribes that New Testament believers do something that we are to take it as a command to obey. Now, I'm not sure if this writer intended his question to imply a New Testament-only ethic. Probably not. Uh, but I think I answered that at the beginning by showing that the New Testament constantly appeals to the Old Testament for their ethical behavior. For example, Romans 7 
indicates that Paul expected his readers to know and follow the Old Testament on the issues of marriage and divorce. He expected they'd already know. He said, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. He expected them to know the law. Likewise, Paul praised the Bereans in Acts 17 for checking out everything he taught with the Old Testament scriptures to see if what he said was true. He praised them. In fact, uh, Acts says that Paul never taught anything without using the Old Testament. Okay, enough on that. I'll end with uh, one more question that was tagged onto the end of the one I dealt with. Uh, it said, and actually this is an observation, not so much a question, it says, hence it's descriptive, not prescriptive, and it's cousin, you can't get doctrine from narrative. Well, the first part is okay in a sense, but the second part is not. Uh, Christ and Paul got doctrine from narrative all the time. For example, Jesus derived the doctrine of the resurrection from the logical implications of the narrative statement that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How did he derive that doctrine? Well, he says God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, they must still be alive, something the Sadducees denied. Um, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul derives a great deal of doctrine from the narrative scene of Moses meeting with God, having his face shining. And really, if you look at the back index in Carson and Beale's commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, you'll see page after page of quotes and allusions to the narrative passages in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. There are literally hundreds of examples of doctrines and even ethical commands based on narrative passages, like 2 Corinthians 8.15, which quotes the narrative passage on the collecting of manna. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack, every man had gathered according to each one's need. And then Paul uses that to encourage faith in generosity. It's a logical deduction. In Galatians, uh, Paul built a doctrine on the narrative passage describing Ishmael's persecution of Isaac and eventually his being cast out. There's some great doctrine there. Anyway, if we keep the scriptural rule in mind that all deontology is in the law and that the rest of the Bible fills out the ethical definition of that law through examples of teleology, situation, and the specific persons and how they are responsible, I think it'll help your exegesis to keep on the straight and narrow. It's a great question, and I hope that my answer helped it. Thanks for listening. God bless.